On today's episode of Still Processing, a 76ers podcast, Still Processing Group discusses the idea of Joel Embiid ducking the Denver Nuggets, the game in Denver itself, which was the secondary storyline of the night. A certain Sixer possibly being on the trade block, and could a Philadelphia-area native be returning to the city of brotherly love? All that and more on the latest episode of Still Processing, a 76ers podcast. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Still Processing, a 76ers podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Zach Chavalala, here with, of course, one of my stunning co-hosts, Sam Giovanni, and our producer joining us for today's show, Mr. Uriah Young. So starting, Sam, first of all, how are you doing today? I am doing all right. I happen to be back my second uh, episode co-hosting the pod. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, noticed I have a, a friend behind me, my little kitty, Frankie. Uh, if you ever see me at any point, if you're watching and you see me look around or if you hear me a little squeak or a scratch or something, that's probably Frankie getting up to his shenanigans. So we'll try to manage that sound as best as I can. But uh, he's doing good, and you know, so am I. Good. good. Well, this is a Frankie-friendly pod. Uh, Frankie, <laughs> uh, unofficial mascot of the Still Processing podcast. So uh, any Frankie sound bites are always welcome. Uriah, how you been, man? It's been a while since we've had you on. Hey, it's it's great to be here. And Sam has Frankie. I have Benny, my dog, but he's not behind me. He's actually under my feet right now. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be back. I'm looking forward to talking Sixers. There is a lot to talk about. Yeah, definitely a lot to talk about. We're inching, obviously, closer to the trade deadline, to the All-Star break. But the story surrounding the Sixers is is not just about who they might acquire this time of year. It's not just about... Joel Embiid making his seventh straight All-Star game appearance. It's about Embiid and the Denver Nuggets. And before we we delve too deep into the true story of the night, let's focus on what actually mattered that night, and that was the game the Sixers played against the Denver Nuggets. Without Tyrese Maxey, without Joel Embiid, without Tobias Harris, without DeAnthony Melton, Robert Covington, Mo Bamba, this list goes on and on and on. The Sixers took the stage at what is now what is it, the ball arena the ball, ball area the ball arena it, that's such a downgrade from the Pepsi Center if I'm being flat honest but uh so they they made the hike up the mountain to Denver to play in Colorado at that atmosphere uh that everyone knows is <laughs> not fun for visiting teams and uh with their extremely short-handed squad they almost succeeded and overtook the Denver Nuggets the defending champs, mind you. So I guess, Sam, first thing I want to ask, what really stood out or who really stood out from that game to you? I think um, the man of the hour has to be Paul Reed. Led the entire game in scoring, and this was obviously someone had to take the shots with the Sixers' top three options and another one of their starters' uh, sidelines. And he was the leading scorer in a game that also featured Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray, which is just fantastic. And Paul did it with jumpers, which was super surprising, obviously. His jumper, he's shown a little more confidence with it this year, but it hasn't always looked great. But that was a game where 
Um, and we'll get into who helped him achieve this career high uh, in a moment. He just took what the defense gave him. Uh, the nugget for playing drop. Obviously, you're not going to you know try to chase a guy like that off of his spot in the mid-range or whatever. But Paul just took the shots, and his, his jumper looks unlike anyone else's, but he made it work. And uh, he was able to get to some open spots. A lot of that was because of Patrick Beverly, who had uh, off the top of my mind, I believe, was 17 points and a season-high 11 assists. Uh, he was moving the ball around really well. Uh, Nuggets mixed up some coverages here and there. And he, like Paul Reed, took what the defense gave him. Um, I'm still continuing to be pleasantly surprised by how how well Pat can attack off the dribble uh, and get into a shot and get into, you know, uh, fake in the paint and get a quick, you know, push shot up there. Uh, both of them were really well, uh, played really well. Some efficient scoring from Kelly Oubre and Marcus Morris. But, yeah, obviously they did fall in the end. But that was one of the more entertaining hospital Sixers games, at least of the Embiid era, if not the last like few years. It really was a it was a great effort, too, from the whole team. Like They played after a very uh, not-so-fun game in Indiana. They came, they played hard, and they gave Denver quite the scare. You know, um, the, Obviously, you ask anyone, any of the coaches, players, they're not going to talk about moral victories, but that, you know, that was a game that they should come out, you know, feeling feeling good about at least as they continue their road trip. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of reasons to to feel good. There are no such things as moral victories, but uh, definitely a, a game as competitive as that, considering the circumstances, feels uh, a lot better than than getting blown out. That's just a simple fact of it. But you're right. Anything else stand out to you? Any other players in particular, or anything about that night that stood out to you? Yeah, there's a particular number that stood out to me. It wasn't a stat. It was actually that big number in the center of their court, 5280. It, help me out, guys. Am I missing something? Because it's a mile high. You can't have two numbers on the jersey, though. It's so stupid. It looks terrible. Yeah, it is. It really is. A little distracting. But anyway, so I think, Sam, like you were saying about Paul Reed, I've been waiting for this game all season. I think once he signed that contract, Utah tried to – tug him away from the Sixers and he decided to uh, stay with, with the team that drafted him. Uh, it was really great to see Paul Reed have that game. I think he needed that, but uh, a player that stood out to me, Sam mentioned was Pat Beverly. Uh, he's the player that if he's not on your team, he gets under your skin, he gets on your nerves, but when he's on your team, you love him because he's one of those guys, rare guys that can back it up. But at the same time, as, as brash and as outspoken as he is, he's humble enough to know that he's there for a reason. He is a role player when he needs to be. But in the game last night, he clearly was able to demonstrate his veteran experience, demonstrate being cool and calm under the pressure of being in such a hostile arena, 5280. But at the same time, you know, some of the shots that Sam mentioned, the push shot, where he's like a hard, hard drive and then stop, a jump hook. The floater was looking good until the end. I think he, that one that just went in and out. But I, I just want to say about Pat Bev, his defensive mindset, his ability to disrupt plays, blocking. I think he blocked Jokic like in the first half, if I'm not mistaken. But in the fourth quarter, I distinctly remember him making play after play on defense. And it was, it. he's kind of inspiring. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm looking for, but I, I really love Pat Bev's game overall. Yeah. And he was coaching throughout the game too, is the other really impressive thing. You know, the broadcast even took uh, a moment to, to show him coaching up Paul Reed during the game, 
on how they uh, wanted to work the screen game. And it was, I mean, really just to have a guy like that on the court who is producing, obviously, which it's not normally the task that Pat Bev is produced to do, is expected to do produce at a statistical level, but he's providing that impact there. He's providing that impact with his IQ and his tenacious uh, fierceness defensively. And then just as a leader as well, you know, just really from all three of those levels, just, just providing that, that much needed uh, level of impact when you are missing guys like Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, you, you can't say enough how, how big Pat Bev has been. He's, he's, he's a lifelong sixer who's in his first year, even though he's at the tail end of his career. So it's uh it's it's crazy to see it's it's been far too long coming uh the team should be uh, and they are obviously so ecstatic that he's here and i i definitely think that those two players in particular stood out i think there was one other who stood out to me i'm going to get to him in a second but to continue on about pat bev just for a second uh what was really impressive was the way that he adjusted defending jamal murray in the second half murray went off for 23 points in that first half. And I the first thing that I thought of seeing that stat line at halftime, you know, about the 23 points, was what Pat Bev had said after the game in Philadelphia not that long ago where he talked about locking up Jamal Murray and how it wasn't the first time, it's what he does, everything like that, and how <laughs> that clearly did not sit well with Murray. Uh, not not at all. And I, I think that kind of fueled that first half performance. But then Pat Bev doesn't let that stop him. He just decides, all right, second half, no, that's that's it. You're done. Like, you had your time. Now this is over. Murray went scoreless in the entire second half against Philadelphia. And, you know, you can say what you want about the Nuggets kind of like playing with their food a little bit. I think there's a little bit of truth to that, more so when it comes to Jokic specifically. Uh, I obviously he did not play as well as he could have. I think that there was just a little bit of listlessness, which we've seen from Jokic at times, you know, like that's, that's it. He's not always fully engaged until he has to be. And uh, that is what it is. I don't think it's as big of an issue as, as some others may, but uh, I don't think that was the case with Jamal Murray. I really think it was a case of Pat Bev just kind of adjusting to Murray defensively and, and really providing that kind of lockdown defense that they needed in that second half. So major points to him. And, and Sam, talking about Paul Reed, you mentioned the jump shooting. I mean, there were times where, I mean, he I won't say he looked like Joel Embiid because that form looks nothing like Joel Embiid, but he was knocking him down like Joel Embiid. And that's something that I think Sixers fans will take 10 times out of 10. I mean, this Uriah, as you alluded to, like this is the game that Sixers fans have been waiting for and and really Nick Nurse to a degree as well. Uh, you want to see this on a more consistent basis. Over his last 10, for the most part, he has done very well. He's been a lot more consistent as an interior defender. He's been a lot more consistent as a rebounder in particular, which is the other big thing that you need him for. Uh, and so games where he's scoring like this are, are fantastic. But as long as he, at the end of the day, is providing that interior defense and providing that uh, hard effort on the boards on both sides. That's really what you need from Paul Reed at the end of the day. And he provided that and a lot more in Denver uh, Saturday night. So that really was great to see out of Paul. But the guy who sticks out in my mind, it, he, I won't say it was the most impressive game. I think that Pat Bev and, and Paul Reed together, uh, you know, put, put whoever guy at one and two you want 
Uh, I think they were both incredibly impressive. But one guy who impressed too was Kelly Oubre. And it was a very uneven game at times for Kelly Oubre. But when that fourth quarter came around, boy, was that guy locked in. I mean, when you look at some of these, he had a putback. It wasn't like a jam. It was more kind of like a Blake Griffin, you know, back in the day poster where he he doesn't even dunk it. He just throws it in. Over the back of Nikola Jokic. I mean, just incredible stuff. And And as someone who's been able to see Jokic up close and personal, the way that that mountain of a man can rebound the ball for you to come up behind him and, uh, you know, effectively get a put back over him is honestly just, it's incredible. So uh, definitely a heck of a game out of Kelly Oubre. He was, it was Oubre-ish at times, a bit uneven, you know, a bit rushed as is kind of just the nature of the Kelly Oubre experience. But uh, some of those highlights were, I mean, man, they were, they were real high. So uh, hopefully he can, fall back into that role we saw him in earlier in the season as the team gets more and more healthy because I think the more he plays within that role the better he plays uh but he he gave him everything that he had on Saturday night and that was definitely a welcome sign hey I thought you were going to say Marcus Morris I, I I when you were you were building up I'm like he's going he's going Marcus Morris but Ubre that's a good pick man it's a good pick. there 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 was stuff to like out of Morris. There was stuff not to like out of Morris. He seemed like he was automatic from three to start the game. Yeah. Uh, and and that was obviously crucial to how they played. But I it felt very clear, as was kind of the case with all the Sixers, considering you have all these guys who are playing all these minutes. They don't normally play that much. They don't normally play those roles. They don't play that. I mean, Paul Reed, for crying out loud, played 42 minutes. Ubre played 40 minutes. You had Pat Bev, 37. Mm. So – these guys are tired at the end of the game. Like that, that is sensical. That is, that is logical. But uh, Morris in particular just really seemed kind of uh, worn by the end of it. And, and one thing that I was a bit surprised about Nick Batum only taking one shot. And I believe that shot was not until the fourth quarter, right. uh, if not late in the third. It, I mean, it just seemed, I know he's not the most aggressive guy and, and he usually works off of crisp uh, kickouts from, Tyrese or from Joel. So obviously he's not working that game that night, but still just one shot attempt from Nick Batum. I don't know. I don't know if there was something going on that night or what, but it just seemed, I don't want to use the word uncharacteristic, but it it did seem unfortunate because I think the team could have used a little bit more out of him. But part of that also just works into scheming him open. So uh, that kind of falls a little bit on everybody there, but all in all, I, it's about as good as you can ask for coming out of a, a loss given the situation. Unfortunately, that was all completely overshadowed by the storyline of the night, which was Joel Embiid being pulled from the game less than, I think it was about or less than 20 minutes before tip-off. Tried to warm up. Medical staff didn't like what they saw. Pulled him from the game. So there's a lot that can be said about this. And Sam, I'm going to turn it over to you in just a second. The one thing I want to point out about, it, it may have been Thursday, it may have been Friday. I can't remember when. The announcement came out from Ramona Shelburne that Joel Embiid was going to be playing against the Denver Nuggets. And before I delve even further into this, this is not a knock on Ramona. This is a knock on the Sixers medical staff. (laughs) With how Joel's injury treatment has been handled over the past years, not even just this season, but years, when have they ever said multiple days ahead of a game 
or, or even just a single day before the game, that he was good to go. This entire season, he's been questionable up until the last minute. He runs through his his, his little own tests, his little drills, you know, in the pregame shoot around and his, his pregame warm-up. And then they decide from there. That's how it's been treated this entire season. So the the second that that notification kind of came across, I'm not gonna act like I knew something that everyone else didn't. I would just say I was very surprised when I saw that, as I think a lot of people were. So uh, to then see him pulled, you know, just before the tip, not the most surprising thing. Uh, far less surprising than than that original notification that came out. But you know, Sam, what what were your initial thoughts when you saw that, and what were your thoughts to the reaction from not only the Denver Nugget fans but uh, NBA fans across social media who immediately outpoured their opinions on the matter? Before we dive into some of like the crazy uh, nonsense that was like almost speculated and then spewed once, you know, it was, he was a late scratch. I will say that I do agree that this was handled poorly to not even put him on the injury report. And then for him to be out just made this whole thing way more complicated than it had to be. It was clear. He tweaked his knee in the Thursday game against the Pacers. He played through it, didn't play the fourth because it was a blowout, uh, not in Philly's favor, but to not even have him on the injury report. And then, as you said, Ramona tweeted it out, and then the day of, you know, it was close to the tip-off, but Tim Bontemps, whether I, – I don't know if he cited who he heard it from, whether it was from Embiid himself or from Nurse, but he did say, like, Embiid's going to play, but Max and Tobias aren't. And then for Woj's reporting to come out and how the team didn't like how he looked in the warm-ups, like, look, obviously the goal is for the Sixers to go for the championship. Keeping him out of this one game, not stressing something – that's there obviously is the right call, but it's just such a bad look for him to not be on. Like even just, you know, I don't think this would have changed the narrative because there are some people who have decided they don't like the way Joel goes about what he does for some very stupid reasons. So it wasn't going to change in their minds, but at least it would have given the Sixers like Mike Malone uh, speculated after the game, the league is probably going to investigate them. And he's right. Like teams have gotten dinged for uh, for different reasons with the rest, but holding guys out of games when they weren't on the injury report, that's exactly what the Sixers did. And regardless of the reason, to not even have him on the injury report is probable. Like, to not even note it down in the official injury report was such a bad look. And I do get, like, you know, it, it's blown out of proportion a little bit, but I also do understand, like, you know, between Embiid and Jokic, it's been said a bunch, It you know, make it clear here, they don't care about any of this. They have tons of respect for each other. They're not getting caught up in any of this. Like, they, they just appreciate each other, and that's that. And it's very refreshing to hear from them. But, like, I do kind of understand why there is a big, you know, desire for Joel and or for Jokic to have his chance to go against Embiid in Denver. Last two years, the first game was in Philly. Embiid played great. And then Jokic hasn't had a chance to kind of get back at him. So I do understand why there's so much buzz on top of just, you know, two of the best players in the game, two of the best players who have been in the MVP race. Um, but yeah, the way the Sixers handled this, like there have been absences that Joel has had, not, you know, not just in Denver, but over the course of his career, that's like no problem. But the way this was handled, I understand like wanting to get him ready for this game. But like I said, it was just not handled very well. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, um, the NBA official Twitter account come out and say, you know, the Sixers have been fined for whatever. I'm not sure what the specific wordage would be. I'm just guessing, but 
yeah, it was just not handled very poorly. And for the whole day leading into it, it's finally going to happen. Yeah. And then the last second, it's not. Like, that just stinks. No, it does. It's it's it. Listen, there there is a part you have to think about. Like this is not good for for the fans and their experience. At the end of the day, the health of the player is far more important. But it's the issue isn't indeed not playing. It's how the situation was handled. You're absolutely right. So again, keeping that in mind, Uriah, there's been a lot of uh, narrative, and we'll talk about Embiid on the road in general in just a second, but. There's been a lot of narrative about Embiid specifically ducking Denver for the past uh, five years. He hasn't played since 2019 in Denver. Is there any – let me put it to you this way. Do you care that Joel Embiid has not played in Denver since 2019? I don't care, but I'm sure there are season ticket holders in Denver that salivate at the idea of seeing their guy as Sam was saying get a chance to retort or to to come back after Embiid pretty much embarrassed him last season on national TV and then this season the Sixers took one at home so I I don't see that is as a bigger deal for me per se but I I do feel for Denver fans like I remember being a obviously I'm a Sixers fan and when LeBron was with Cleveland I think maybe his third or fourth year I think I bought tickets to a Cleveland game and he didn't show up. I was, I was bummed out. Cause that was like my one opportunity to see greatness, you know, Allen Iverson versus uh, LeBron James. And, and I, so I feel bad for the kids who have been hyped up over this game. It's NBA rivals week. The NBA has been pumping that for the past few weeks. So I, I feel for the fans, Mike Malone, you know, he tried to put it on the fans and then he started lamenting about, Oh, my game plan. Look, man, like you're a professional coach, professional players, you can game plan for Paul Reed if you need to, right? So, yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything relevant to it. And it's just one of those things. It's very unfortunate and not ideal. The game, yeah, that I mean, Joel, not a, yeah, go on, Sam. The, the games that Joel has missed. So, first of all, this whole ducking narrative, like, he has one chance a year to play this game. And I know some people look at it as, oh, this is the one game a year, the one road game you got to get to. But no, it's also like one chance a year. And by chance, if there's an injury that occurs beforehand, he doesn't have another chance to, to make that up. It's not like they're a team like the Celtics, who the Sixers will play at in the road twice, right? There's only one shot a year for Embiid to play in Denver. Um so obviously what happened this year happened this year. Last year he was ruled out well ahead of the game after playing two nights of a back-to-back. And I forget what exactly he tweaked, but he tweaked something in the second game, and that led to the decision to not play him in Denver two nights later. Then the two seasons prior to that, he was in a, in the middle of a streak where he was already out, and the Denver game happened to coincide in that streak. Um, in 2021-22, the Denver, the in Denver game was the fifth of nine straight that Joel missed. And it was part of a, it was in smack dab in the middle of a six game road trip. The year before that, it was the second to last game he missed in a streak of 10 games. And that was the second to last road trip, second to last game of that road trip there. So the, the chances are not like as much as people make it out to be. And again, like, yeah, it's the one road trip. Again, it's a rivalry for other people. It's not a rivalry. It's not like Joel, like, oh, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to, you know, stick it to Jokic like obviously he wants to play against the best but it, it's just not this you know 
game that people are making it out to be where it's like, oh, you have to make sure you're healthy for this one game. And try as you may be, hi, Frankie. Um, try as he may be, sometimes it's luck of the draw, right? Like, um, I, I forget who mentioned this, but I saw someone on Twitter point out that Joel hasn't played in Sacramento in a few years. And obviously the Kings are not as much of a... Ducking the Sacramento Kings? He is ducking that smoke from... from ducking NBA royalty, look at that. Royalty, yeah. He doesn't. He's afraid of the beam. No, but for real, like, obviously, again, the Kings are not as much of a, you know, part of the narrative with Embiid as Jokic and the Nuggets are, but it is just way overblown. People, you know... They don't want to look at the context. People who complain about Embiid missing these games, missing these certain specific road games where he's playing teams over 500, are the type of people who are like, oh, I'm just asking questions. They don't care about the context. They don't care about the nuance. They don't want to look any deeper than the surface level. It's just, I'm just pointing something out. I'm just asking a question, and I'm leaving it up for anyone to answer for whatever agenda they may have. And it's extremely annoying. And we can get into the second argument a little later, but it's just so ridiculous to see this and obviously it's twitter where it's just you know quick reactions and people want to say what they want to say so it, it all of it is just extremely annoying no one really looks at oh he's missed these games in denver well why is that 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 second question doesn't get asked it's just oh he missed these games in denver he must be you know as one of as one denver writer asked nick nurse is it a character issue it's it's that question in particular if you guys want to sound off of that was particularly egregious but this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense yeah i mean so the whole narrative of Embiid being uh a road ducker or specifically ducking the over 500 teams on the road uh <laughs> there has been a member of uh nba media who has pushed that agenda more than a media member ever should push uh an attack agenda against a player and yeah, NBA Twitter has has followed, and uh, you know, Twitter is one of those places where you know the old adage definitely fits. You'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. That's the, as great as Twitter can be. Sometimes that's that's also the other side of that same coin. So uh, you know, just just some really crazy stuff going on with that. But then you go and you look at this game in Denver post game. The the specific. Question that you were talking about. So Nick Nurse is asked specifically about what went into that decision for Joel Embiid to sit. And then a different reporter, a Denver reporter, asks a very quick follow-up about how this represents on Embiid's character. And I, I, I would like to show a bit of grace as best I can because this reporter, I, I – the way that the, the question was asked, it made me feel as if they ha are on a similar experience level to to myself and you, Sam. So uh, someone who is maybe within their first few years covering the team uh, on the beat, you know, like not just covering the team, but covering in the building, right? It felt like a, a, a very uh, inexperienced question. And so I'm going to speak just about myself and, and my specific process when i first started doing this last year you know going to to these games as a credential media reporter and for me my process was to kind of take a step back and analyze the room during these questions as much as everyone is excited to ask questions and uh you know ask questions of the head coach and, and of the stars who are sometimes there post game uh i i chose to take a step back and kind of understand the cadence of the room a bit and also 
process the certain questions that uh, a lot of the other reporters in the room asked. And specifically those who, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people in those rooms, but specifically those who I, I have a great deal of respect for listening to the way that they phrased their questions, the types of questions that they asked, when they asked them, what they didn't ask, even though I knew they were thinking about it and everything such as that. And all that just to say, it felt as if this particular reporter instead chose to get, I don't, I don't want to say like a, a clickbait question in there, but they kind of forsake all of those habits of wanting to uh, ask the right question at the right time and instead just just ask what was it, whatever was coming across their mind. You know, they didn't take that moment to, to think. And so they phrased the question very poorly because if you phrase this question in a way where you're asking more so about uh, whether or not Nick Nurse thinks that uh, there is anything to Embiid's habit of not playing or why he seems to, you know, the, the narrative is avoid Denver. Uh, it, I think that's one thing. I think that's a fair question to ask why he hasn't played there since 2019. That's completely fair. But it's the use of the word character that I really have a problem with. First of all, this is a game of basketball. Let's take a step back and let's not question the character of a human being because he did not play in your stadium. That is a very big accusation. Uh, it's a very inappropriate accusation considering the topic of what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about a guy who has seen and 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 everybody has their own story. I'm not trying just to focus on and beat. That's that's kind of the point I'm getting is that all these players are people. It's what we forget about. You know, Embiid has has obviously gone through so much that's publicly documented in his life. Uh, and he is now an incredibly successful player in the NBA who has an incredibly loving family. Do I think that him missing a game in Denver is a, a reflection of his character? No, I think that the, you know, how he's grown as a person since becoming a father is a reflection of his character. I think how he's grown as a leader on this team, taking these guys under his wing, which he's made immense steps. He's taken rather immense steps as a leader, specifically this season. I think that speaks to his character. I don't think missing a game in Denver, Colorado speaks to his character. And, and, and I think that it was very poor word choice on that reporter's behalf. And I, I would like to, I would like to think that I would I would hope that that is all that it was and not uh, sincerely implying anything negative about Joel Embiid's character simply based on him missing this game. But at the end of the day, what, what is forgotten all too often is that these players are people and you are not a bad person because you miss a game due to injury or because you don't play in a specific stadium. You know, we're we're. we're just way, as people, we're way too quick to dehumanize athletes. And I think this is just, I think it's another case of that. And hopefully just a quick error in a, in a, in a moment where you're feeling a bit nervous and hopefully it's not much more than that. But if it is anything more than that, then that's obviously a person who should be rethinking their current career. So uh, it's, it's something that really should never happen. Uh, and, and again, hopefully it just never does again, whether it's Embiid or whomever else it is. I mean, this, this goes both ways talking about, uh, Jokic as well. And, you know, we've seen the, the 
negative slander specifically online against a guy like Nikola Jokic. And like, there's just no room for personal attacks just because you don't like something about a specific player. Like there's, there's plenty of people. And there's also people actively in the NBA who have actually like done bad shit. Like let's focus on talking about that. We don't need to talk about Joel ducking Denver. Like there's, there are people who are currently playing who are in the midst of trade rumors at this very moment who have done heinous things. Like, let's just get a little perspective and let's move on from this whole Embiid ducking conversation. But before we do, you know, Uriah, Sam, any other thoughts on the idea of, of Embiid ducking or, or his character or anything such as that? I just wanted to say about uh, the reporter who asked Embiid or about Embiid's character, don't, don't put him in front of Giannis. Because Giannis will will, will put Giannis him will chew him up place. and spit him out. Remember when Giannis was like, he's like, somebody asked him about was this season a failure, and Giannis did a really good job coming back at that reporter, not belittling him, but just comparing Michael Jordan and and his unsuccessful seasons where he didn't advance in the playoffs. Like Giannis did a really good job, kind of you know handling that reporter and and. You know, let's say Embiid does play in Denver next season. I wonder how that reporter will approach Embiid or if he's even in the same room next yeah. season. That would be interesting. What also would have been interesting, it's it's particularly interesting just thinking about recent happenings in Philadelphia sports. Uh, had John Tortorella, Flyers head coach, been the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, this entire interaction uh, would have gone completely differently. Uh, and, and if you want to learn more about that, look up John Tortorella and San, but really just, it, 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 that, that is kind of funny to think about how that would have been handled. The, the reporter in the end was honestly lucky that it was Nick nurse who I thought, you know, had uh, a great amount of candor and really just kind of quickly wrote it off. And then Keith Pompey stepped in like a pro and, and asked the very next question to, to just move on from that topic. So I, I, I think as far as all those are concerned, you know, that was some good teamwork right there to kind of move on from, from a question that should have never been asked. But, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're talking a good bit about uh, the Sixers and, and, you know, we've, we've mentioned kind of danced around the idea of the trade conversation. Let's, let's put Denver behind us. Let's, let's put it in the past where it belongs. Take a look forward. Trade. One more thing, Sam, what do you got? Not not Denver specifically, but this conversation. Of, I, I agree. I would love to move past the conversation of Embiid ducking, but I wanted to read off this, um, the list of games. So oh, one of the yeah, three, perfect. It's focused, obviously, the with the game in Denver. Everyone's like, oh, Embiid hasn't played in Denver. But on top of that specific destination, he Embiid has been getting a lot of flack for not playing teams over 500 on the road. And – there is again, like like I mentioned, it's just um, asking questions and not trying to figure out the answer, just leaving it out there, which is a, a typical bad faith thing you see just everywhere online. But there is context behind Embiid not playing a whole lot of games against teams over 500 on the road. First of all, there's just not that many opportunities. Like half the teams are somewhere uh, hovering around 500 or below 500. Some of these teams are in the West. You only play them once. Most teams in the East, like, you don't play them twice. So unless they're all division rivals, you're not going to have that many chances to do that. Um, I looked at the Sixers' schedule. Um, we are recording this Sunday night. So as of right now, the Sixers have played 21 road games. Ten of them have been against teams currently 
with a record over 500. Uh, the Bucks, Timberwolves, Thunder, Pelicans, South. Wait, I'm reading the wrong list. Sorry, scratch that. Okay, so 21 road games total. These are the teams over teams with records over 500. The Bucks, Timberwolves, Thunder, Pelicans, Celtics, Heat, Magic twice, Pacers, and Nuggets. Embiid has played in four of those games. So obviously that's just 40%, but there were reasons for each one. The Timberwolves game was scheduled horrifically. It was on the second night of a back-to-back where the first game was in Philly. I think back-to-backs are stupid. I think they're made all the more stupid by having them be in two different locations, especially locations that are as far away as Minnesota and Philadelphia. There's just no reason to do that. If you need to have back-to-backs NBA, have them be at the very least a bus ride away or have them be in the same city. Have you know back-to-backs yeah. against the New York teams or the L.A. teams or something like that. Or like just the Florida teams. It's so ridiculous that the NBA has not figured that out. Uh, wrapped in this conversation of, you know, frustrations about Embiid not playing certain games and a lot of other players too, is the fact that the NBA still shoots itself in the foot with its scheduling way more often and it, than it should. It's just ridiculous. Like keeping this, you know, the 82 games and improvising a bunch of different stuff with the in-season tournament. Like there's just so many easy decisions that they continue to fail to make. And it results in games like that Sixers game against Minnesota. They're one game in Minnesota, one of the best teams, where it's a very tough decision for guys to play. It's the second night of a back-to-back after a long flight that night. So Embiid missed that game. He contracted an illness for the games against the Pelicans and the Celtics. He was not the only one dealing with that illness. Um, I think James Springer had the illness and was out, ruled out for both of those games. Tyrese Maxey and Nico Batum contracted the illness and missed the Celtics game after playing in New Orleans. Then before facing the Magic, before facing the Heat and the Magic in a four-game road trip, and be twisted his ankle in the last game. Like we saw early in the game, he was going up for a rebound and he turned his ankle. He missed that entire road trip. He didn't come back and play the so-so Rockets and the crappy Bulls at the end of the road trip. He sat out that entire thing because he twisted his ankle. And then obviously this Nuggets thing, which talk about how poorly you want, how poorly it was handled. He was dealing with something. So again, this is something that's just thrown out there with no context. In the context, like, Either like if you choose to believe that Embiid is ducking, you choose to believe that he is making up all these injuries, all these types of things that he's just blatantly lying, which is a ridiculous assertion, completely baseless. And I again, I understand you want to look at like certain patterns of things, the way players play, where they play, whatnot. But to just assume, oh, Embiid is you know uh, Pistons Wizards man, it's ridiculous because again, like and he also last thing I'll say, he doesn't make the schedule. Sixers have had a bunch of games on the road against crappy teams. He didn't choose that. It's not his fault that, again, these opportunities only come around ever so often. And it's just eh, – I'm ready to move on. I don't even want to – Yeah, I mean, this this whole argument was designed in a lab in, in an effort to discredit one of the greatest NBA seasons in history. And it's uh, it's – honestly, it's it's kind of pathetic. So it's uh, it's not something that I think really – uh, I'm glad that we took the time to acknowledge the the falsity of it, but uh, it's it's not really something that I want to focus on having for the rest of the season, which I, it's it's going to be. I mean, obviously we had the negative conversations around Joel's MVP case last season that lingered on even through the playoffs, and now this year we have Embiid sitting in general, but uh, specifically this 
narrative that he is ducking teams on the road. It's it's laughable. Uh, it's just have fun. Just have watch the NBA for fun. Like, what are you watching basketball for? If not for fun, like if you do not enjoy this game. So if you want to just bitch and cry about it and, and not enjoy the game of basketball, then, you know, do it. And then just, just shut up, honestly. Like that's all I'm asking. So it's, there's a, there's stupid, a tweet but... out there. Sorry, Zach. There's a tweet out there that no, says um, they were, it was, it was a joking tweet, but it was something along the lines of going to skim the box scores and argue with people who actually watch the game. And there's far too many people who not only take that seriously and like just adopt that, yeah. but have a, a big platform on Twitter. This is very frustrating. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, you look at the, the amount of people who didn't even realize that Embiid had that injured his knee in the game against Indiana. I mean, like that's, that's one huge example of people who are willing to have these baseless arguments uh, defended as if it's gospel and, and not even have a lick of context to the situation. So uh, it's, it's, ridiculous but uh you know now let's let's put it in the past let's talk about some fun stuff let's talk about some uh some some acquisition rumors and and i say that because they're not just trade rumors uh but the first one definitely is chris haynes of bleacher report and uh tnt reporting that the phoenix suns have had interest in kj martin the sixes kj martin uh there's there's been a little bit of a little bit of smoke throughout the season that the Sixers uh, are uh, they're open to the idea of moving Martin, who's in the final year of his deal, uh, and they're looking for a quality second round pick in return. So, uh, Uriah, I guess I want to start with you. What are your thoughts about the idea of the Sixers shopping KJ? Is is that something that you'd be willing to take a second round pick? Do you find the value in just keeping him throughout the year's end? And do you have any reason to want to keep him on the roster next year? No, I think I, I wouldn't mind parting ways with him and, and getting that second round pick. I mean, that's just more assets for the Sixers in the future. And he's he's still, I don't know, like he was in the game against Denver. And I think he's, I don't know how many points did he score, like like five or six points. I, I can't remember, but I just think that he's not really helping the team. He's not going, I can't see him getting any true minutes, whether it's regular season or postseason. So final year of his contract, make the deal. Uh, if they decide to keep him, I, I can't imagine them paying him what he probably feels that he deserves. So I, I feel cutting ties now and getting something in return that could possibly help move the needle in terms of getting either something in the future of the off season or even before the deadline. So I, I, I would not mind parting ways. He doesn't uh, move the needle for me and he, and he hasn't since he's been here. And Sam, how about you? Do you think that there's any value in whether it's retaining him or even using him as a young player in a deal? Or do you think that the idea of just gaining that second round pick to possibly flip in a deal has either more equal value? I would say I imagine that most teams out there, you know, uh, if the Sixers need to include a sweetener in a trade, would be more interested in that second round pick than KJ Martin, who I think is a solid player. I can definitely see a way where he contributes on both sides of the ball. He obviously has phenomenal athleticism. Um, he's got, you know, just great physicality and can use that against a wide range of players on the defensive end. Offensively, obviously, he's a fantastic lob threat. Has shown um, in his past to be a, a little bit of a three-point shooter, not like a, a genuine chucker, but someone who can, you know, 
make the open shot when it comes his way. Um, but I also agree that like it is kind of tough. It, it feels like he's obviously in the back of the rotation for Nurse. So if he isn't going to play that much, you know, include him in a trade if another team wants him, or you might as well just go and get that pick. Um, obviously for the Suns, like they've made so many trades where it's hard to imagine like them coming up with a, a quality second round pick. Um, I have theirs, um, their picks of the future pulled up right now, but there's so many protections that it's kind of tough to read on the fly. But regardless, I mean, KJ is a solid player. I can see him panning out somewhere. Um, when Mark Stein actually reported that he was available, I was thinking of fits for him. And one fit I kind of like, uh, kind of funnily is Denver. I think that he could be sort of a diet Aaron Gordon for them off the bench if they wanted to go that route. Uh, they obviously have a, a young guy who's super athletic. Two guys come off the bench uh, who are super athletic, Christian Brown and Peyton Watson, who um, have you know have been pretty solid for them. So for Phoenix, I get it. Like They, they need some depth. They want an athletic guy like Martin who can help create some vertical spacing with the trio of, of scorers they have. For Sixers purposes, I mean – I don't think he's a guy that they like need to trade, but he's a guy that if they end up moving for a second round pick that makes it easier to make a trade elsewhere, I think that's perfectly fine too. Yeah, so you mentioned Phoenix's draft picks and the the protections around them. So uh to to put them into perspective, they have a 2024 from San Antonio, which is basically a fake second round pick. It's protected 3154. San Antonio is, is not finishing outside of that this season. That's uh, plain and simple. They have a 2026 Detroit, Milwaukee, Orlando, the worst of those picks. They have a 2028 from Boston, 2028 from Memphis, uh, 2029 from Memphis as well. There's just no real value in those picks. So, you know, I, I understand the interest on Phoenix side. But I'm not quite sure where Philadelphia finds that that's the fit. I, I definitely buy the idea of them looking to trade KJ. But for for that kind of return, I mean, you're going to have to talk about, I think, multiple second round picks. And even then, I, I'm just not sure that Phoenix has the ammunition. I do like the idea of Denver. And one thing that we've been able to see uh, from KJ, just with the Sixers being so shorthanded, you know, he's gotten time for, for more and more minutes. And unfortunately, the, the jump shot is not really coming along as many people would like to see uh, from him. He's, he's kind of had an abysmal year from three. Uh, but what has been interesting is him as kind of a rim-running partner for Tyrese Maxey. And he, he's a surprisingly good lob threat. And it's, it's, it's not surprising on the one hand because we know how athletic he is. Uh, but we've just never seen him run that kind of action before. So to to see him now working in that kind of capacity, do I think the Sixers should keep him just because he's basically their lone lob threat? No, I don't think that they should keep him just for that reason. But I think there are teams that definitely could have some interest in him because he's a high-energy level defender. Uh, he is a helpful player on the fast break. You can put him in the dunker spot, and you can you know even run those types of pick-and-roll actions with him if you have that type of – lead guard at your disposal so if you're a team even like a charlotte that is just kind of looking for young talent uh has a chance to re-sign him you know in the offseason pair him possibly with Lamelo ball for now they're moving on from a player who was mentioned previously on the podcast miles bridges also another possible candidate to phoenix you're moving on from him so you replace him with another athletic forward in kj martin 
Uh, you're able to still kind of run some of those similar concepts. Maybe you bring them back on a, on a good deal. But those are the kind of teams that I would be looking for for KJ Martin, those who could kind of maximize his skill set. I obviously think they're going to want any team that has Martin. It's going to want to see him kind of grow a bit. But you're really what you're looking to get at him is what he already provides, and that's energy, energetic, tough defense, and that's athleticism on both ends. So uh, I, I think that there is – a ceiling, and I think that there is uh, definitely a rationale for Philadelphia to move on from him. But uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Phoenix is the most logical landing spot. Even a team like Sacramento, I think, makes more sense. Uh, Dallas makes a lot of sense. Like there's these teams that they they are in a position in the playoffs, but they just have more to offer than Phoenix, and that's kind of the situation that the Suns have put themselves in. And, kind of shot themselves in the foot where they've put uh, all this leftover capital into players like Bradley Beal and uh, Yusuf Nurkic, who's been fine for them, but not he hasn't elevated them to the level that they're looking for. Uh, you know, there's just repercussions for that, especially under this new CBA. So uh, that's the situation they find themselves in, and they're going to have a hard time finding a way out of it. But uh, while KJ's on the block, I just don't see Phoenix as a, as a – marketable landing spot but one more reason to possibly move on from a guy like kj martin is that you'd be able to create a roster spot which i think is going to be really crucial for philadelphia and i've i've seen a couple people talk about this the first person i saw was Derek bodner and then jake fisher also mentioned this concept as well uh and that's the concept of, of philadelphia possibly being one of the most aggressive teams on the buyout market so uh based on the new cba and this is subject to change because the trade deadline could affect where salary cap numbers fall uh, by the end of it here. But um, based on the current CBA, there are only so many teams who can participate effectively in the buyout market for players who made more than the mid-level exception uh, at the beginning of this year. So for players like Kyle Lowry, players like Gordon Hayward, these are guys who are making more than that mid-level on their current contracts. So if they're bought out, a lot of these teams that are past that apron in the CBA, they're not going to be able to bring these guys aboard. Philadelphia not being over that apron at this point in time are a major contender to sign some of these guys with little competition. Few people can offer not only the opportunity, they can offer the contender status, and then they can obviously offer the contract at all. That makes them a major player. And one guy who's been specifically linked to Philadelphia is the aforementioned Kyle Lowry, uh, Villanova's own, uh, you know, Philadelphia area native. What would it mean to you, Uriah, or or what level of interest do you have in bringing a guy like Kyle Lowry into Philly? First off, I have to say, did you guys know that Kyle Lowry over his career has made almost quarter of a billion dollars? I just looked at it. It doesn't feel like it. That's crazy. <laughs> 247 million in salary money he's made. So good for him. I think the idea of, of having a player like Lowry on this team, which we do not have a real true backup point guard. So he comes here in the buyout. He gives you stability. He gives you experience. He gives you uh, veteran leadership and for probably a decent price. Right. Uh, so I just checked all time. Uh, actually, no, of current players uh, leading with assists total, uh, he's fifth right now, almost 7,000 assists. So he brings this this energy. He brings. He may not be as athletic as he used to be, obviously. He's 37 years old, but 
I would not mind that. Originally, at first, when I heard him, like, uh, I kind of want to steer clear of that. But if we can't pick up somebody else to back up Maxi, uh, DeAnthony Melton's been banged up for a while. We don't know what's going on uh, with with his injury, at least right now. I wouldn't mind that. And to have him playing alongside another Philly native, Marcus Morris, I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think the narrative itself is is pretty cool. I think Lowry still has uh, something left in the tank. Obviously, he's not a starting level player in the league anymore. He's kind of shown that with the Miami Heat. Uh, I I do think that alongside Morris, the the vibes are certainly interesting, and uh, you know we've seen the impact of Marcus Morris coming home, and it's it's honestly it is like say what you will, like there is a, a positive impact from that to into these vibes in these locker room, Marcus Morris is present. And a lot of that's him as a person, but then a, a factor of it also is him being home in Philadelphia and uh, him getting the key to the city. I know some people kind of, you know, laughed a little bit at that idea, but like good for him, man, like to see him like come home and uh, just be so clearly happy in, in Philadelphia. Uh, for a guy like Kyle Lowry, it'd be great to see that for him too, just from a narrative perspective and coming back, playing under coach Nick Nurse again. That's something that, uh, you would think that he would welcome that. And, of course, just playing for a team that is among the contenders like the Sixers are, there's there's a lot to like for Lowry. The one concern is, you know, where does he exactly fit in the rotation? You know, you mentioned the Sixers don't exactly have a true point guard, and that's true, but there is this current uh, spot being taken up by Pat Bev. Right. Where right. He's, 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 he's playing the one, he's playing the two. He's been so valuable for the Sixers this year, and and so many minutes are already going to uh, Tyrese Maxey and Kelly Oubre is playing a lot of the two, uh, not just the three. Uh, you know, so where where exactly does Lowry fit in that? You know, Sam, do you have any concerns about Lowry from like a, a minutes and a role fit perspective if you were to join Philadelphia? That that role slash fit is kind of the reason why it's tough for me to envision like a scenario where like Lowry plays big minutes on the Sixers barring a roster shakeup, but real quick, these are the seven, according to uh, Bobby Marks, one of the best uh, cap CBA gurus out there. These seven teams cannot sign a player whose salary this season is more than 12 and a half, 12.4, sorry, million, which is um, the MLE. So the Warriors, Clippers, Celtics, Suns, Bucks, Heat, and Nuggets cannot. So that's a lot of teams, particularly in the in the East, that have exceeded the threshold and thus won't be eligible to sign a guy like Lowry. And that certainly helps the Sixers' chances. Um, and you guys obviously mentioned Pat Bev. And to me, that's kind of where I don't really see Lowry's fit all that much. So Pat Bev has been really solid for the Sixers on top of being just the quintessential, like, gritty Philly guy. He legitimately has been – productive he's stepped up in big games when he needs to and he'll have some games where he's you know a bit you know inconsistent or whatnot but he always plays super hard he can run the offense which is super valuable especially given the fact that this team is devoid of guards who can reliably handle the ball and create you know here and there and I do think there's a vision where Lowry is more productive or helpful in a playoff series than Pat Bev but I think it would just be, you know, replacing one with the other seems to be a, like a move that I don't know if Daryl Morey would make. Daryl Morey also has a relationship with Lowry because he traded for him in Houston and then traded him to Toronto way, way back in the day. So 
I think Lowry, the, the numbers with Lowry and Pat Bev this season are staggeringly similar, but two things stick out to me. And this is not just per minutes, it's per possessions and whatnot. Um, first, Lowry, his production came as a starter, whereas Pat Bev has come mostly off the bench. And obviously there's a lot of mix between playing starters and, and bench players. That's just how rotations work. It's not, you know, five guy platoons coming in and out and whatnot, but you know, ostensibly you would imagine. Unless Lowry, you're Doc Rivers. Good. But I'm sorry, yeah. go on. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, uh, unless you are playing for the new coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, like you can you can expect to play a mix. But you know, generally, you can imagine Lowry's playing against tougher competition and starters than Pat Bev is playing a lot of minutes against backups. And then the second is, you know, both of these guys, Lowry and, Be- and Beverly, they can handle the ball, they can pass, they can create here and there, but they're also limited as they're starting to get, you know, older in age in their mid-30s. It's great that they're still even here, but you you know, especially near the end of the season and high leverage, you know, competition in the playoffs might be tougher to um, get real value out of them. And the one thing that sticks out to me with Lowry is his shooting. Not only is he way more efficient than Pat Bev, he shoots at a much higher volume. So I would imagine that that makes him an easier guy to play around and beat in Maxi, where you can rely on him to just let it fly and you know, you want his ball handling here and there. And again, Beverly's been solid in that area, but you can imagine like having a guy who is more reliable and spacing the floor as a role player, you'd want to play around the the two stars. But at the end of the day, I don't think Lowry and Beverly fit together on the court. Like they're both, you know, smaller point guards, obviously. Pat Bev plays well above his size. Lowry is really strong. Um, but it's just a tough to imagine such a small uh, backcourt coming off the bench and relieving the starters that you kind of would have to choose one. And I think choosing Lowry over Beverly, while there's the chance that he's an upgrade, I think would be kind of risky. And I understand that the Sixers, you know, the vibes are cool and all, but it's also most most about what's best for the team and will help them win. But that yeah. also is a move where the level of upgrade you're going to get isn't totally certain. You know Beverly is going to do fine and, you know, he'll probably see maybe a little less minutes in the playoffs. What whatever the case may be. But I I think that although there are a lot of indicators on top of being a, a Philly and Villanova guy that like why Lowry might look for the Sixers, why there's going to be a bunch of links to them. Like there already was one. I, I don't think the fit is there unless Pat Bev is involved in a trade. And again, in that case, I don't see that being super realistic. So, you know, yeah. the, the fact that Lowry can't go to many other contenders helps Philly, but I don't, I, I think making him fit would be too clunky to the point where I think they're just better off saying no thanks. Can I just jump in and say, I, yeah, I understand sure. the fit. I understand the fit. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I started this podcast episode praising the job that Pat Bev did, but I just really see having a point guard with the experience that he has for the money, for the bargain that we get. I think having him as insurance, because if anything ever happened to Melton or Maxie, or even Pat Bev, I don't trust uh, – uh, his name is <laughs> escaped me right now. Um, Springer. Jaden Springer. Yeah, yeah, I just – I his athleticism is off the charts. I've never seen a guard like do like a chase down, two-handed block the way he's done. I, I'm rooting for the kid, but he's just so raw. And if Embiid is going to truly end the season uh, in the way that we all hope he does with raising a championship trophy at the Wells Fargo Center – we need an insurance guard. And that's why I think, why not? Why not make space with K.J. Martin? 
have fun in Phoenix. Good luck to you. Bring home, bring home Kyle. Put him on the I team. I do get that, but do you, and, and you know, what we will say, you know, let's say either Springer is involved in a trade or Martin. Do mm. you think Lowry would accept being or Pat Bev accept being the third stringer? Do you think they can play together more? Do you have more faith in them playing together? Or do you think that one of those guys would be willing to take a backseat to a backseat? I think you, you guys mentioned vibe earlier. It's all about winning, right? And you got a home a hometown guy, Cal Lowry, not just grew up in Philly, North Philly. I grew up in North Philly, but also uh, Villanova, right? To know that he'd be on that team, like in the city where he grew up, like me, just like Marcus Morris said, it means everything to him to be on the Sixers. I hope he stays. You know, he might be on the trade block, but back to Lowry. I, I think the fit, like you said, Sam, it's it's hard to imagine them playing together. But again, you need insurance. You cannot trust a second year guard who is crazy athletic, but just lacks that offensive awareness to make the right pass in crucial situations in a seven game series, whether it's semifinals, conference finals or finals. You just can't. You can trust a Kyle Lowry if someone gets banged up in the playoffs. Yeah, so I think that there's a couple different ways to think about it. Um, first of all, from from Lowry's perspective, uh, coming home is great, but if he if he does want to go to another potential contender where he's a little bit more opportunity, there still are some teams to choose from. You know, now we can debate how close they are to actual contender status, but teams like Cleveland, teams like I mean, New York's always going to be an option. I think that they are going to ride out this Miles McBride Malachi Flynn thing and see how that works out. But uh, the Knicks are always a threat in that regard. Um, you know, I, I, again, the Mavericks, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Sacramento Kings, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and a lot of those are outside of the Dallas Mavericks. Typically oddball landing spots uh, for, for some of these guys, but they are upper-end playoff teams that have real opportunity for uh, minutes for a guy like Lowry where he can kind of show out a little bit. And Dallas in particular uh, is is – I think a more welcome fit just with his experience with Texas. Now, I mean, Dallas and Houston are, are completely different animals, but uh, listen, a, a, a no state income tax state is a no state income tax state. Uh, so, you know, that also is another, uh, air, you know, opportunity there. And to play with Luca, to play with Kyrie, like that's that, I think that in particular, I would say Dallas would probably be my, if I were Lowry, where I would want to go. But as far as him playing, in Philadelphia, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is you're, you're not looking at replacing Pat Bev's roster spot, right? You're looking at either K.J. Martin, Furkan Korkmaz, I mean, possibly even Jaden Springer. We don't know how the trade deadline is going to work out quite yet. Or even if you're doing some type of consolidation trade, who's to say that Robert Covington's still here past the trade deadline? Who's to say Marcus Morris? I mean, there's a litany of different guys who there's just not that certainty about. Uh, so you're not replacing one-to-one one of these actual rotation players with Lowry. So you're kind of getting that opportunity to hopefully have that embarrassment of riches and your playoff rotation is going to be roughly eight deep, obviously. So that opportunity is not going to be there. But uh, one thing that you kind of pointed out earlier, Raya, that kind of sticks out to me is you have that strategic opportunity situation <clears throat> excuse me, based on matchup. And I think that's one thing that could potentially come into play where if we're looking at uh, a series or a situation in a game where it stands out that either Kyle Lowry's the right option here or Pat Bev's the right option here, I think it's 
almost kind of a, a defer by night uh, or defer by round at the very least kind of situation where, uh, you know, you go to one guy one night or one round, you go to another guy another night another round. And I don't think you have to worry too much about Lowry and Pat Bev playing together unless you're talking about regular season games, which I'm not as concerned about. But, Sam, you're absolutely right. Like, is – and I think the more important question – is Kyle Lowry going to be okay with that? Because whether or not Pat Bev's okay with that, at the end of the day, you know, he's still on the team. You know, hopefully, and based on his character from what I've seen this year, he's a guy who's really ready just to kind of roll with everything in the in the sake of whatever the team needs and the sake of winning. But is Kyle Lowry willing to do that to go from where he was starting with Miami to now this off and on reserve role in Philadelphia? Is that something that he wants? Like that's at the end of the day, that's obviously the the massive question. Uh, so I, while I think it could benefit Philadelphia in some areas, you have to consider who the other buyout candidates are. If they're a greater fit, you have to take a look at what the Sixers actually do at the trade deadline. And more important than anything, does Kyle Lowry actually want this? Because if he doesn't, well, your answer's already been you know made for you. So uh, that's that's really just the decision there. But. Uh, there are some other potentially interesting names on the trade or rather on the buyout market watch. Uh, you know, guys like Lowry's current teammate, Gordon Hayward, who could provide uh, a little bit of shooting, a little bit of handling from the wing, not so much on the defensive end. Guys like Alec Burks in Detroit, if they're looking to move on from him. Uh, another guy who can kind of facilitate that point guard role, who I even liked at a lot of these points during the season as a trade candidate. But DeLon Wright, if the Wizards don't move him at the trade deadline, is he staying with the team or are they going to be moving on from him? And if that's the case and you're looking at Kyle Lowry versus DeLon Wright on the buyout market, well, I think if you're Philadelphia, your choice is as easy as anything to go with a guy like DeLon Wright where you don't have those size concerns. The defense is even stronger than it is in, in the case of Lowry. Uh, and you have a guy who you actually can play alongside guys like Pat Bev, Tyrese Maxey, DeAnthony Melton, whomever, but whether it's by trade or buyout market, I do think they need to add a guard before the playoffs, just because Raya, you mentioned the concerns about certain guys staying healthy. I have major concerns about DeAnthony Melton staying healthy right now. And hopefully all this time off has really done them some good. And, and we don't have to, you know, uh, worry about and, and marinate on this injury any longer for him. But, you know, this is effectively two years with back injuries that have, hampered at least his play if not his availability so uh yeah no i do have concerns about the anthony mountain so they definitely need to add a guard to help quiet those concerns or uh really just not not even a, a backup per se but maybe even a better option a that even alleviates some pressure off of mountain i mean sam am i off base in that at all no i'm with you and i i would like to endorse delon Wright as a possibility but also one uh, quick Lowry destination that I think is a possibility, Minnesota, where former Sixer Shake Milton seems to be losing his grip on the backup point guard spot. And Lowry and Chris Finch actually have spent two years together, albeit on two different teams and very far apart. Finch was an assistant in Houston and for Lowry's last season in Toronto. So there's at least some familiarity there. Um, and they're one of, again, the better teams that are eligible to sign him in the first place. But uh, to the point with Melton, I do agree that I think, you know, he's a player that the Sixers are probably going to need a very good insurance policy for. I mean, he's a solid player, but on top of, I think, working better 
off the bench anyway than as a starter, these back issues are are really risky. They're not anything to play with regardless of what they are. And he tried to come back for a game and then was, you know, uh, put back, you know, on the bench as he tries to come back and he's now he's ramping up again, but you know, you just never know with those things. So, you know, I think DeLon Wright would fit super, super well. He is, you know, I think the, if you're looking for a guard slash wing who can provide on both ends, be an upgrade, uh, you know, bring some size, bring some, you know, shooting some perimeter defense. I think the the gold standard out there is Caruso, but Chicago is so unpredictable. No one knows what's going to happen there. I do think DeLon Wright makes a lot of sense. And I also agree with you, Zach, that someone who can handle and create is going to be super important because, you know, the, the problem with the Sixers more often than not in the playoffs has been offense. Defensively, they're generally fine. That's because Joel, when he's really, really locked in, is one of the very best rim protectors out there. I mean, guys just don't want to go in the paint when he's there. So because he's there and they have enough good defense personnel, they've got Nick Nurse, who has never been afraid to experiment. I think they'll be fine on that end, but they really need guys with more juice as creators, whether it's a guard, whether that's a forward like Hayward, who is good, but also, again, comes with injury concerns. Like he's probably he's he's pretty shaky considering all the stuff he's dealt with over the years as as solid as he is, even at his age. There's a lot of risk there, but I do agree that. Uh, shot creation from whatever perimeter position um, is something the Sixers should really try to address at this deadline. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple needs. You know, we've heard rumors of them being interested in uh, potentially making an addition. You know, in the big man department. Uh, obviously, Paul Reed has begun to kick it up a little bit as of late, particularly since those rumors started uh, leaking out a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's it's and 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 wing defense, I think, is something that NBA teams are always looking for. But I think shot creation, exactly like you said, Sam, I think that's the one thing that, that the team's been looking for. And people like to kind of overly simplicate that sometimes as a as a backup point guard. Sometimes it's that, sometimes it's not. I mean, you know, there's there's all different types of shot creators at, at even various different positions. So uh, you know, I think more than likely you are looking at a guard, but whether that's a, a Tyus Jones type or, you know, whether you're even looking at, and this isn't a name that I like for Philadelphia, but it's one that I've heard just by fans often mentioned, a Jordan Clarkson. Like, there's different guys who can create different shots different ways. So uh, we'll see what happens come the trade deadline. Uh, we are a little bit, what is it, less than two weeks away now, week and a half, week and a half away from the trade deadline. There's, there's going to be a lot coming forward about it. And uh, we definitely will have kind of a, a trade deadline primer of sorts of a podcast before we have our reaction pod, of course, going over some things. But we're going to save those names, those uh, ideal names that we'd like to see Philadelphia target, uh, have a little bit more in-depth conversation about uh, who they are reportedly going after. You know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the back and forth DeJounte Murray stuff and, and all that other good information. But uh, for now, thank you so much for listening. I've been Zach Chavalala here, of course, with Sam D. Giovanni, Uriah Young. And listen, we are <laughs> – get ready for this fun stretch. This is uh, a Sixers Beat Reporters dream every year is this stretch of Western Conference road games starting at 10 o'clock. Three and four nights. Oh yes, three and four nights. So Woo! if you uh, and one of them was bumped you, up from nine to ten because it's on national TV. You love get your Red Bull ready. Get your Red Bull ready, Sam. Right, I'm, I'm a <laughs> exactly. guy. I like drinking uh, 
Celsius energy drinks. So I'll, I'll be having those on the ready. You know. There you go. Boom. There you go. So if you know a Sixers beat reporter, just uh, give them a hug because they need it. I'll tell you that right much. So uh, thank you again so much for listening again uh, for another episode of Still Processing. And listen, let's uh, let's go into this trade deadline. Let's keep this excitement up. And uh, let's let's try not to duck on this team like Embiid has on Denver. But <laughs> that's it. Have a great night.